and in that protocol I use 10 acupuncture needles. We put them in the feet, in the uh, lower leg, hands and also two needles in the head. Hey podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast. The weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 117 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's putting needles in Astana riders. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash vibration. And yes, we are starting with a review today by... Mr. Four Stars by Randall Feb from South Africa. Really informative and interesting discussions. So much so, I've downloaded about eight since last night. Thank you very much for going to iTunes and writing that review, Mr. Randall Feb. And if you do like the show, I would love a review on either iTunes or Stitcher because five stars makes me go. No more counting dollars, we'll be counting stars. Thank you very much. And let's get started with the performance probe this week. And probe number one, the effect of post-exercise drink macronutrient content on appetite and energy intake. That is a mouthful. So what does that title mean? Well, carbohydrate and protein ingestion post-exercise are known to facilitate muscle glycogen resynthesis and protein synthesis. So they're refueling the glucose that was used in the exercise and they're repairing the muscle with protein. But the effects of post-exercise nutrient intake on subsequent appetite are actually unknown. This study aimed to investigate whether a protein-induced state of feeling full that has been reported at rest was still evident when preloaded protein was consumed in a post-exercise context. Using a randomized, double-blind, crossover design, 12 unrestrained, healthy males completed 30 minutes of continuous cycling exercise at approximately 60% of their VO2 max peak, followed by five three-minute intervals at 85% of their VO2 max peak. And 10 minutes post-exercise, the subjects consumed 500 milliliters of either a low-energy placebo, a 6% whey protein isolate drink, or a 6% sucrose drink. And 60 minutes after drink ingestion, a pasta lunch was provided and energy intake at this lunch was quantified. Subjective appetite ratings were measured at various stages throughout the protocol. Energy consumed at lunch was lower after the whey protein isolate drink compared to the low-energy placebo, but not different between the sucrose drink and the other trials. So the carbohydrate drink and the low-energy placebo are essentially giving around the same amount of feeling full. So the results considering the post-exercise drink total energy intake was not different between trials and there was no difference between trials for any of the subjective appetite ratings. So these results demonstrate that where post-exercise liquid protein drinks may enhance the adaptive responses of skeletal muscle, this may be possible without affecting gross energy intake relative to consuming a low energy drink. 
Performance probe number two for love or for data. It's a look at the change in approach to the romance of cycling over time. It was on Velo News a couple of weeks ago, and it starts out at the 1937 Tour de France, where, of course, there were no power meters, no heart rate monitors, no nutritional plans, and the riders in that era relied heavily on grit and determination to compete the grueling races. I hope you can see where this is going. It's trying to answer the question, has the romance been lost with the addition of technology in cycling over the years? Because the article goes back and says that science in bike racing was originally devoted to survival and had nothing to do with performance. But in the early days of the Tour de France, of course it was survival. They were grueling conditions. They were using really crappy equipment and the road conditions were horrible. But over time, the sport got rid of its woolen skin in favor of see-through mesh with hardly any aerodynamic drag. It's definitely faster now, it's shiny, it's sleek, it's manicured and precise. This is an interesting point that the article brings up. A love affair with misery has evolved into an endless computation of power and weight. Of course, another word for romance may be torture. Cycling has evolved like all things, but is there a cost to the gloss? Has it stopped whispering to us? Of course, the first person they speak to is Dale Brailsford. And he's quoted here as saying, I think people tried just as hard as they did before now. They have just as much desire to win now than they did before. I don't think there's any less romanticism in that aspect. I think people were trying to get advantages in every little way, which I don't think is a good thing or a bad thing. There's not much romanticism about that. I think it's human nature. It's what competition is about. It's trying to do something that gives you an advantage on your opponents in a legal way. So whether that's romantic or not, I don't know, but it's the very essence of the sport. Browsford's version feels like color by numbers, and we've all seen the sky train rolling through, staring at their stems. Is it just that these numbers are only relegated to the sports scientists or those that are in love with numbers and love going through data, looking for trends and margins? Because the other guy you start to think about when you think about this side of cycling is Robbie Ketchell. He's Garmin Sharp's data guru. In this article, he wisely points out that the very fact of pedaling a bike used to be a bit of a scientific wonder. It's Ketchell's job to look at the science and make adaptions so that riders can go faster. And he's quoted in the article saying, What I really, really, truly believe is that technology is what makes cycling romantic. It's why we have the sport. Back in the day, the wheel and the bicycle were so technologically advanced. And that's what created the opportunity to have the sport of cycling. So having these intentions and developments that continue to evolve over time is what I think makes the sport romantic. And it makes it so interesting to follow people. I think that's a really interesting take looking at the history and from the very beginning there was elements of science to the sport so of course you have to bring in the rider that is the real romantic and in this case it's dan martin who doesn't even race with a power meter but of course he's connected to technology of course he is on garmin sharp one of the most highly technical teams there is he's quoted here as saying it's technology you know technology affects every sport look at formula one it's all to do with computers now and football is trying desperately to prevent technology taking away the flaws in refereeing and they call all that romanticism. I think it's just a different state, a different type of riding, and it depends on how you ride, how you are as a person. 
yeah, it's fine for me. I've never looked at power during a race, and it actually does my head in if I do. I can go a lot deeper when I'm not looking at the power because I think there's so many riders who know what power they can do in training. In racing, for me anyways, it's a completely different animal. I suck at training camp every year. I get my ass kicked, and then in the races, I seem to be like, oh, okay, I'm actually pretty good. So it's different. It's a different beast, training versus racing. I've always been able to race a lot harder than I can train. So then the article talks about that there's no doubt scientific progress is inevitable. Teams keep scouring for margins of performance, but in the end, a rider still must attack to win. And Ray Bradbury is quoted as saying, the best scientist is open to experience and begins with romance, the idea that anything is possible. The forges of old have been replaced by carbon moulds of new, but maybe there is a romance in chasing what we before thought to be impossible. Perhaps there is romance in the promise of an undefined future. What is your take on this? I know I've touched on this before because I do like the technology of cycling, but How does this affect the sport that you're involved with? How does it affect the sport on your level? And do you think it's going to a place that you don't want to go and we're losing the romanticism? For me, I see technology as an opportunity and I think you can still have the human element no matter how technical the sport is going to become. Alrighty, let's get to the nuts and bolts this week. And we're talking about pedal forces, vibration and performance and a little bit of health thrown in for good measure. This week's episode comes from two presentations at the World Cycling Congress in 2014. The first one, Muscle Activity and Pedal Forces, Do They Matter in Cycling Performance, is by Fred Grupp. And the second one, Effects of Vibration on Cycling Biomechanics, is by Dr. David Batuki. So you can get a bit of an idea where I'm going with the show. The main area I want to talk about is how different environmental factors affect performance. Focusing on vibrations, those from cobbles, gravel, and riding off-road, it was a fascinating discovery to me when I found how detailed the research into this area is. But let's start with you and your bike. And Dr. Grappe says cyclists maintain a special relationship with the bike. The cyclist is both the master and the motor. The freedom that a bike gives a rider is one of the magical elements of cycling and having control over a machine that can propel you in any direction and one which you master with strategy is only part of the equation. You would get nowhere without your motor. So where am I going with this? Well, in order for you to get the most out of yourself and your bike, you must be part of the bike. You must really act as one, especially when it comes to producing power, because the pedaling movement is super important. And if you break down a full revolution, you'll see how the heel is dynamic and it follows a natural gesture. Also in this circular movement, the level of force must adapt to the pedaling circle. So the force of the pedals and the changes in muscle activity is due to the regulation of power output. And intensity of the effort and cadence are also important here, but there are other important parameters. And If we talk about the position on the bike as being one of the most important parameters, when you sit down on the bike, it is really important to have a comfortable position because when you ride in a more aerodynamic position, the goal is not comfort but to reduce drag and increase speed and both positions apply different force on the pedal. There are more examples though by standing on a climb 
means there is a lot of rotational movement and this changes the forces on the pedal as well. Also on the cobbles, the vibrations play a role in changing the force of the pedals. In every single cycling environment, there are opposing forces that can change the force on the pedals compared to the input. I've got four here. These include wind, rolling resistance, weight of bike and rider, and mechanical friction. And in a performance sense, we're looking at trying to optimize mechanical forces on the pedals, specifically in relation to the power output, which relies on minimizing the opposing forces just discussed. But it's also related to effective force, which is the turning of the crank and the angular velocity that you get this power down. So the problem with pedaling is that it is actually impossible to have an effective force throughout the entire cycle. And this puts the force and pedal analysis metrics from Garmin and Pioneer and others into context because plotting the level of force according to the level of angle during the rotation becomes the best way to measure these forces. Optimizing your technique is knowing how your pedaling technique changes according to your situation and environment. So whether that is climbing or time trialing or whatever. To take this step further, Dr. Grappe breaks down the different positions and how to optimize for power output. Starting with climbing, when you are standing on a climb, you will experience movement in your shoulders and your pelvis, which changes the potential output of the bike. As an example, if you produce 300 watts on a 7% slope, the total resistance is 60 newtons for an effective force of 200 newtons. Dr. Grapp believes that the most important system to overcome here is the weight of the rider on the bike because for each one kilogram on a 7% slope, it takes approximately 4 to 5 watts of output. This is where Garmin's new seated and standing position metric will be very handy because it detects and flags riding position as seated or standing during a ride by comparing forces applied to the pedals. It also provides summaries of how often and how long riders can be in this position. This be great for making adjustments to your fore and aft positions when you're standing up, as well as fine-tuning the amount you put on the bars while you're standing up on the climbs. Another area with strong opposing forces is on the flat, and it's not the hills this time, but the wind which is the problem here. So to overcome the resistance of wind, the opposing forces are 26 newtons for an output of 200 newtons. It's not as high as a climb, which is 60 newtons, but for the same output, that is a huge change. This is in a standard position, though. When you're in a time trial position, the total resistance reduces by 4 newtons to 22 newtons for an output of 200 newtons again. So it changes slightly when you think about the actual aerodynamic drag, which is the most important resistance to overcome on the flat. The next one is cobbles, and when you ride on the cobbles, you have vibrations between you and the cobbles, and this also includes the saddle and the legs and the arms. The opposing force is 35 newtons for a 200 newton output, and this opposing force is greater than wind on the flat, but not as high as riding on a climb. So it's not aero drag, but rolling resistance, which is the most important factor to overcome here. Dr. William Betucki has taken the effects of vibrations on cycling biomechanics to another level. We're going to look at the main effects of vibration, which are for health, comfort, and cycling performance. 
So back to riding on those cobblestones. Cobblestones are the extreme of cycling vibrations. Let's expand it to cycling on rough roads, on a mountain bike or gravel grinding or any off-road riding on rough ground. And every time you ride on these surfaces, compression exposure is the largest threat to your health, especially the upper limbs. You will experience compression on the median and ulnar nerves in your hands. This syndrome affects nerves, blood vessels, joints of the hand, wrists and arms. It's more than just having a bad bike fit. It's actually the environment you're riding in which can affect these areas as well. Also, the fingers can experience pain where you decrease grip strength and you lose finger dexterity also. This is actually super common and one that I've definitely experienced. They were able to measure this with a special pair of gloves, kind of like how you measure saddle pressure. They were able to measure where the pressure is localized, which is half surprising to me, but the fingers actually cop the most pressure. It does make sense though, if you are trying to let the bike move underneath you while you're on rough ground, then your fingers will have to do a lot of the work to hold on, which you know which fingers suffer, the poor little pinkies. It doesn't stop there though. Other than the hands and wrists, there are possible chronic effects on the neck, the lower back, and damage to the spine. But this is so far a little woo-woo for me. It's not until the science stepped in that it started becoming really fascinating because the researchers have an equation for recommended daily exposure to vibrations and they have a scale that moves from below the caution zone to the caution zone and finally to a risk zone where they were actually able to take this equation and work out the exposure risk for a specific amount of vibration on the pedals and saddle. Once they had these measures, they were able to work out a way to measure the vibrations on a bike and a body while riding cobblestones. And the results showed that the exposure dose is high, super high when you're on cobbles. According to their results, the maximum acceptable exposure to cobbles any rider should experience on any one day is only seven minutes while you're riding at 35 kilometers an hour. Where a race like Paris-Roubaix, the time on cobbles can be up to one and a half hours. No wonder riders can't piss after they finish if their body is being affected that much. So that's health smashed. But how about performance? Because vibrations increase oxygen uptake. And I can say that clearly because two studies have confirmed this. The second being the more interesting of the two, where they were able to link mechanical waves transmitted from the pedals to the lower body. This then activates muscle receptors and a greater number of motor units, leading to a greater activation of oxygen uptake. And this research also suggests that vibration exposure can also decrease gross efficiency. There is also a study on minimization of vibration dose and optimization for comfort, specifically handlebar position on compression where three positions were tested in the drops, on the hoods or on the tops. And not surprisingly, the drop position produced the highest compression exposure compared to the other two positions and the top position enables the highest output, which explains a lot when you watch the Paris-Roubaix and all the riders are on the tops over the sections. Finally, to wrap up here, I've got some actionable advice and there has been some work done on different bike parts and their influence on vibration absorption, where they were trying to figure out how each component contributes to vibration transmission. They found when it comes to your hands, the components that have the highest influence are forks, which transmit 24% of vibrations, and the wheels, which transmit 36% of vibrations. 
The vibrations experienced on your saddle are the highest from your wheels at 42% and the frame at a whopping 70%. So this gives support to all the measures you see at the Paris-Roubaix, which you can use to reduce the vibrations in your next rough ride. Old school wheels with a wee bit of flex, but strong as an ox, fresh out of the box. Huge tubulars up to 30 millimeters, lower pressure down to 78 pounds per square inch. Frames by a certain French company with shock absorption technology. Forks, I think about rock shocks with their Paris-Roubaix SL. Or how about vibration absorbing seat posts and extra layers of bar tape and gel pads under the bar tape. Also, it seems that this research might have started a couple of new categories of bikes that some bike companies have introduced over the past couple of years, including endurance bikes and gravel grinders. But to wrap up here, next time you're out riding on some rough road, think about the forces you are experiencing and how you can minimize them. Whether it's an air attack on the flat in the wind or it's your standing position, there's always room for improvement. Alrighty, let's get to the tech hacks and product section. This week, it's a product and it's a pair of Nicks, but this is an absolute genius move. A women's pair of Nicks that have a halter style section. So you put it over your neck and you don't have to wear it on your shoulders. Man, when I saw this, I thought this was such an amazing thing. And like all amazing things, I thought straight away, it makes perfect sense. And it is such a simple solution. So if you have a full zip jersey on, you can just unzip it and take off the top and you can go to the toilet without having to take off your jacket or jersey or anything that you've got on. They will be 150 bucks and available in the Northern Hemisphere's spring it could also work for men. I can see a first iteration for winter tights with a gore windstopper chest piece. All the extra layers make it extremely time-consuming if you needed to go to the toilet when you're all kitted up. How many times have you had to take your jacket off with full pockets and place it down on some dirty toilet somewhere or you're running late to meet the bunch and you're trying to be as quick as possible but it seems to take forever It's really a pain in the ass, and with a windproof chest piece, you could add an extra layer for no extra bulk. I'm totally sold. I'm waiting for the men's version because it might look a bit funny, but I would definitely buy it. And now that quote from the top of the show, it's Eddie DeSmet, Astana's acupuncturist. I know it was a little cheeky at the start there by mentioning needles, and Astana is in a lot of trouble at the moment. But this guy is an acupuncturist. I'm actually a big believer in acupuncture. It's been a long time since I've done it personally myself, but when I did, I had fantastic results. They weren't in the same context as Astana, which they're using them for recovery. And it's interesting that Astana is the one that is kind of leading the way with this stuff, considering what is happening right now with three of their riders. And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash vibration to find any links used in this week's episode. From there, you can click on any coaching link on the site or visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for more information on our coaching packages. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 